going to be awesome. Yeah, it sounds like the, the, the perfect end to this amazing it's run. It's only getting started, Scott. Oh, my gosh. Up. Hold on, All son. Right. All right. Hi, I'm Scott Johnson, and welcome to the final of the Chris Metzen series that we've recorded. The final part, part three, everybody. That's right. Now, you're going to be happy to know that part three is longer than part one or part two. It's about an hour and ten minutes of actual interview. I decided not to chop it up into smaller chunks, rather just give you the big final edit. Now, there's a lot of things to like about this episode. It is the most emotional portion of the series, certainly. It's the most in-depth that we've gone in this series. And here's my favorite part to report. Not only are you going to get a lot out of this like you have the previous parts, but I think you're going to really like the cool insights into Heart of the Swarm and Diablo 3 in particular. Uh, there's a lot more about Thrall and WoW and things like that. But toward the end of this uh, interview, really great insight as to where those stories were going, how they reflected his life, and how Chris feels about those today. And in some cases, it's controversial. Not everybody loved the story direction of Diablo 3. But if you stick around, you'll find out why Chris did and still does. Anyway, this has been nothing but a pleasure, this series. And I look forward to more of these with Chris. Uh, we've done more before this. We'll certainly do more after. And he's been amazing to work with. And I want to let him know how much I appreciate, personally, him sitting down and taking the time. I know you guys are going to enjoy it, so I'll get out of the way and let you do that. So here it is, part three of the Chris Metzen interview. Enjoy. So uh, I met this girl named April and she was uh, super fly and super cool and she had tattoos and bright pink hair and everyone wanted to be her friend. And we started dating and we were both kind of in a, how would I put this, a party mode. We lived fast and fun and we had a lot of fun. <laughs> I don't know. We had a the scene we were in at the time was pretty rock and roll and we had a blast and she was um, an awesome co-pilot for me because we had awesome adventures and she was a person that, you know, loved people and, and came from a really good family. Um, and her parents reminded me a lot of my folks. You know, they had deep kind of religious backgrounds and were lawful good. And I just got her and I, I got her family and I just loved her and she loved me and we just had this kind of whirlwind crazy romance. And I think in a lot of ways, I would come to kind of realize this many years later when my, uh, one of my brothers, my, <laughs> my brother's baby mama, very, my wonderful sister named Janice, she had kind of coined this idea that April simply made me feel really cool so many ways because she was so beautiful and so hip, you know, and everyone, everyone wanted to be near this girl in a really fucked up way. Um, and I, I can say this in the past tense, I think in a really weird way for who I was and what my life was at the time, she was kind of my version of a, uh, like a trophy wife. Mm. And that's a, that's a hell of a thing to say out loud. And, and I, I, I don't recall ever thinking that out loud, but in hindsight, I think there was this layer of seeing her, um, 
it's possible I didn't always see her for the real person she was. Um, I saw her in so many ways when we were young as the person, how she made me feel. Um, and I know that happens with a lot of people, you know, and, and with, with my experience up to that point and my insecurities, which I really didn't understand then, I'm 25, you know, 25 or 26 at the time. I think I was a little obsessive about her, meaning you make me feel this way. I have to have you in my life. I have, you know, I have to keep this going almost like a, like a drug. And, and to her credit, again, I, I, you know, that's all kind of crazy stuff to say out loud, but she is a very wonderful, you know, one of my very best friends today and a wonderful, wonderful person. And I, and I think in some ways I represented, I'll tell you the story and you'll see in hindsight, I think I represented kind of things to her that made her feel kind of safe and complete circuit, certain circuits she had about her own identity and we kind of helped complete pictures of ourselves that we needed to have at that time. And while that worked for a while, that that's not always the basis for, you know, long lasting relationships. So ultimately, here's here's a really weird turn in the road is that she, uh, you know, my family, I, I was raised. Um, I'm going to get a little weird here, dude. And I, I, I hope that it's OK to do so um, in terms of I, I never talk about this kind of stuff, but it, it, we're we're going right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is the place I to was, do it. I was raised Catholic. You know, my folks go to a Catholic church. I went through nine years of Catholic school, which a lot of people listening right now are going, oh, of course, that makes so much fucking sense. I can't even believe it. Um, this Irish train wreck, it, now all that makes sense. So, you know, when I was a kid, it was very important to me. And I was a good soldier, right? I was, you know, for those of you out there that are Catholic, I was a, uh, I was a lector and a peer counselor. And I was, you know, you know, class president in my eighth grade, you know, Catholic school. And I, I, you know, again, in seeking that identity, I, I, I would do all the things and play all the roles I felt would make me feel safe. And, and like I had identity that I can trust in this, in this community, in this group, in this, you know, system, um, around the time when I was 14 or 15 and really just processing a lot of stuff at home and unable to, I don't know, just make sense of things. I had become very bitter and very cynical and just wanted to kind of in, in ways, even though I still live with my folks, just escape my family, you know, escape the identity and the gravity of family and the responsibility to family. I just wanted to do my own fucking thing and be able to figure my, my head out on my own. And I think, I think the first victim of that was faith, right? I became about as militant an atheist as you could be at 15 years old. And I read every book I can get my hands on. And I, I got into it's all the stupid shit you get into, right? You know, every type of magic system and, you know, studying, you know, Crowley and, Isis, Urana, the Golden Dawn, you know, and all sorts of kooky cults and um, uh, God, numerology, and, you know, God, what was the big, uh, just everything, man. Yeah, I went crazy. I just went, started researching everything I get my hands on. Comparative religions has always been one of my favorite, you know, kind of studies. Uh, what makes Hindu Hindu, you know, the, the process of samsara and how it affects your, just every you know, part of your choice in life and, you know, you know Buddhism and the, the innate core of Islam, you know, submission, right? Which is the same as every religion ultimately is asking you at some core level, just submit. There's another way, you know, I, I got into all of it, you know, just to try to understand. And I, I think I was really trying to rationalize the fact that I didn't want to play ball anymore. And I didn't, I didn't want to be accountable. I did not want to have faith. I did not want to believe in bearded men in the sky or that there's destiny or that any there's anything going on other than 
the choices we make in this life and the consequences we have in this life. I just wasn't interested in any of it. And that's fascinating because most kids are like 15. I don't want to go to church this week. All right. You got to go next week. And you're like, I don't want to go to church and I'll be at the library because I'm about to fill my head with everything like that. You really went the extra mile, dude, to rebel. Well, hey, if you're going to do something, you know, do it to the <laughs> best of your ability. So, and I was, I was such a dark kid that all this stuff really appealed anyway. And of course it's the, you know, it's the mid to tail end eighties and I'm a metalhead through and through, of course. So my Dio and my Metallica and my Slayer and, you know, Megadeth and Testament and, you know, just all my favorite bands and, you know, uh, all that stuff was not entirely appreciated by my folks who felt that. I had been compromised by, you know, the King of Darkness and such, you know, trying to explain, you know, the cover of the, uh, you know, Dungeon Master's Guide as it slips out of my book bag during carpool, you know, those were always fun discussions. So getting, so getting around to, I, I was, I was an atheist with a bullet um, and that really lasted, you know, most of my life up and up, up and until around the time I was you know, maybe like 30 or 31. And there's an interesting story there, but part of, I know this all sounds so meandering. I apologize. So part of also uh, the thing about a April and and the love that we had at the time, and this is also going to sound a, at least a little weird. One of the things I loved most about hanging out with her and hanging out with her family was her family was a, like a how do you call it like a Christian family. And being <laughs> you're being you know having grown up Catholic and certainly now as an atheist, I was not interested in the least to say it lightly. And one of the interesting things about meeting her family was um, I really hadn't seen it done that way before. You know, in my family growing up, you know, you, you went to, it was, it was clearly very important to my folks, but we didn't talk about it a lot. You know, we, you know, my, my dad didn't really sit me down and really emote and gush about how his faith made him feel, what it meant to him and the, the continuity in his life from his dad and his dad before him. I understood all these things, but I didn't understand just how personal that was to him and, and this deep love that it, 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 it engendered in him. And so to me, of course, at that age, it just felt like this thing you do and it's hoops you jump through and I just wasn't having any of it. So so how interesting that I, I meet this girl when I'm 26 and I meet her family and suddenly just by by their example, and again, just, you know, just a family just like any other, right? You know, you go to dinner and I'm the, I'm the, I'm the new dork that's dating their sister. And I roll over for dinner and her older brothers, you know, they're yapping at each other and yelling and swearing and pa, 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 you know, fighting around the table. And then they'd stop, you know, you know, 20 minutes later, come back around and, you know, put a hand on a shoulder and be like, Hey, I'm really sorry that that was jacked up. I didn't, I, I didn't mean to hurt you like that. And it shocked me. I, and it sounds so stupid to say out loud. Right. But it really did to see, you know, these adult men who were just like me and my brothers, but who would stop and clearly because this thing about accountability and relationship and loving and forgiveness and whatever this thing I was seeing them do, it was clearly important to them and clearly something they exercised boldly. Does that make any damn sense? Mm-hmm. And the more to know her dad, you know, who just kind of epitomized a lot of uh, just this different kind of accountability. I mean, it really, it really shocked me. Is this it? Is this what I'm not interested in all this faith shit, you know, or, or gods or angels or anything, but is this an example of what it can do for you in your life? Could it affect your relationships? Could it affect the way you, you know, you, you act and jam with people? There was something very attractive about it to me at that time. And I didn't really know what it was then. 
I just knew I didn't, I wasn't going to go run out, sign up uh, and wear anybody's badge is, is a way that I would have put it at the time. So fast forwarding a little bit, I'm, again, I'm sorry about all the storytelling, but there came a point where in my relationship to April, again, like we're pretty rock and roll. We're having a lot of fun. And uh, I think I could say without, you know, we, we were drinking a lot. You know, we were, you know, we were party buddies. We loved each other's families and we loved hanging out and we're getting down to the idea of, you know, I, I had asked her to marry me. You know, I'm like, here, here we go. This is life. I love this girl. She makes me feel so good. I can just easily see we're going to have babies and we're, you know, it's just going to be awesome. And I'm going to work at Blizzard and it's, I got this good job, blah, 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 blah. I had it all planned out, had it all together. And being my father's son, you know, that I, I deeply wanted to be a dad. I wanted to be a husband. I wanted to have, you know, just a steady family filled life because that's what my dad had taught me is the highest value is the highest calling is the, is the most, is the richest thing a man can aspire to. That's what I learned from him. And, and, and really even, even during the really rough years, you know, when, when I was in, in my early teens and things, it was always true of that man and of my mom, you know, is that as, as hard as things got for them holding it all together, they loved their family and they loved their role of, of, of facilitating it and protecting it and holding the center. And, you know, and now they're, you know, what are my folks? I'm, I'm 45. They are 75. And um, with all these grandkids, you know, and um, it's, it's so wonderful now to see them in this phase where we did make it through the rough years. We did come through all this crazy life together. And, but, but at any rate, they had, they had sewn that into me, you know, that um, as a medicine boy, I, I wanted to be a daddy and a husband. And um, so I had asked April to marry me and we were going to get married and um, things were proceeding and it was going to be awesome. Yeah. It sounds like the, the, the perfect end to this amazing it's run. only getting started, Scott. Oh, my gosh. Hold on, All right. son. All right. So here's where things start getting a little weird. And again, I'm sorry I'm talking so much. Maybe you can edit all this shit together. <laughs> Yo, you're good. You're all good. Keep but going. Any person out there would be even remotely interested in. I thought we were talking about dragons and orc war chiefs. <laughs> so I'll get back around to dragons and orc war chiefs. So April and I are going to get married, and it's it's life is life is great. And at some point, we had a party. And as happened often, I would drink too much and possibly, possibly black out and continue to run my mouth for hours on end without any memory of it. <laughs> oh, man. Heaven forbid. It's possible I drank enough in that phase of things that that was a, a relatively normal experience. I go off one night, one of her, one of her friends is hanging out and we got on the subject of um, faith or religion or something. And I let this kid have it. And I, all my vitriol and all of my, since I was 15 and on, my disdain for organized religion and this and that and uh, how weak people are that they need to have anything, you know, beyond the empirical to substantiate themselves. I just went off and it was just this toxic flood. And of course, I didn't remember any of this the next morning, but um, I guess April was just around the corner um, in earshot and heard all of this and probably suspect I was always upfront with her about where I was at with all that. But it was more than she had heard before. And mm -hmm. it was said um, hatefully and it shocked her. And um, within days of that, she gave the ring back and it was just one of the most brutal moments of my life. She was just like, look, man, you know, Damn. I love you more than anything. I can't imagine not being with you, but I don't think I can start a family and have babies with a person who has that much hate and is so far away from faith, you know, from, let me, let me say it specifically away, far away from God. 
And if you can imagine my mental state at that time, um, well, a number of things happened. But that's just about the last thing an atheist like me could hear. It is the most absolute damning thing you, that you could hear. And, and the most special, precious, precious, that's a funny word to use, most apt word possible, the, the ring, the thing, the idol that I had made of her, of our relationship, of this pending marriage. And everything it'll unlock in my life. It was the Six. one ring to rule them all, literally, in this case. One wedding ring to rule them all. Holy shit. <laughs> Does that echo backwards through time? Yeah. It was the most devastating moment of my life up to that point. And I think hers as well. Because she was very genuine. You know, even though we were partying and doing that, we weren't going. We, neither of us were people that were you know, obviously going to church or anything like that. But I think she just had this moment of clarity of like, that just, that's, you know, the, the faith thing kind of re-kicked in for her, you know, as, as her parents daughter um and it scared her so she gives the ring back and it started me on a you know um i guess i guess i should just cut to the chase we wound up getting back together and i wound up promising that you know hey look i'll start taking you to church i'm not going to wear anybody's badge and i'm not going to buy into one damn thing i don't want to buy into but if if that's what you need i love you enough that that i will hell i'll drive you and i'll sit next to you i might even listen in my head i'm like well i'll think about my wizards and dragons for an hour and chalk the time up to, you know, it's dev time. But I remember at the at the bottom of that of that very dark hole, I remember kind of laying on my couch and one of the weirdest things, her her uh her old man actually wound up coming over to my house. Um, because this guy loved me and, you know, um had been very good to me. And he sat down with me and he said, Kid, I love you. And I respect that you see the world in this way, you know, you know, you know, you're all atheist kick and I get it and I get your big brains and all your cleverness. Uh, how does all that feel right now? <laughs> How have all your big brains and not choosing a side and, and kind of staying out of it? How has it served your life up to and including this moment? And, and part of me is like, dude, fuck, are you fucking serious? Yeah. And he wasn't throwing it at me at all. This was completely set in love, but he challenged me. You know, to it's like, what if this was all meant to play out? You know, what can you tell me that you can't just in your head do the exercise of what if, you know, what if there's more? What does it cost you to ask the, to honestly ask the question in your deepest place? And we wound up having a good conversation. And I thought that would be the last time I'd see him. I laid on my couch and I remember staring up at the ceiling, you know, chain smoking, you know, but strangely for the first time, not drinking. I had the weirdest impulse just to not drink. And I remember asking the, the, the most ludic ludicrous question that was even possible at that time, or staring up at the ceiling, all right, God, you know, if you're real, you're going to have to hit me with a, with a lightning bolt. Nothing short of a lightning bolt will do, because I just don't think you're there. And I think I'm just talking to myself in my head, and this is all very fucking stupid. And no lightning bolt hit that night, but in a very real way over the, you know, intervening weeks and months um, and years, as it would turn out, I just started to kind of see things in a very different way. And it, it set me on a path to um, ultimately kind of reconcile with April. And, um, and ultimately we did wind up getting married and very quickly getting pregnant um, with our, our first child, Sophia. And I remember the first time, you know, for, for the job, I used to travel a fair amount. You know, you go there, you know, you're selling, you know, um, doing press junkets and talking about the games. And I remember, uh, God, what was it? Was it World of Warcraft? I can't remember what pro was going to Seoul. I'd never been to Korea before. Oh, it was one of the World of Warcraft press junkets before the game had come out. Yeah, this was you uh, and you had that rad mullet. I didn't have a mullet, damn it, Scott. It was some kind of thing. It was, I don't know if mullet's the right word, I but you... I remember what you're talking it about. Was it was pretty glorious. Uh, this, <laughs> but 
I remember we had had Sophia and it's a few months after she was born and it's, you know, with, with everything, you know, having a newborn, all that transformation and all that calculus going on in your heart and this new marriage and all this, I hadn't been out of town before in this new role. And I, for the first time in my life, I did not want to leave. I wanted to be home with my girls. And I remember uh, my father-in-law giving me a book to read, um, which many people out there may have read. It was, I think, a big seller at the time. What was it called? Um, Warren was the dude's name. Uh, Purpose Driven Life, perhaps. It was a huge seller. And he had given it to me to read and I accepted it kind of going, yeah, never. I'm never going to pick this up. And for some reason that day heading to the airport, I was so unnerved at leaving home. And maybe the subtext was I finally had a home, like a real home, you know. And for some reason, I put that book in my bag and I don't remember what the impetus was. I certainly wasn't going to read it. And I got to the airport and I'm sitting in, oh God, how douchebag does this sound? Like, you know, the executive lounge, right? Yeah. And I'm getting on this first class flight to Korea. Rough life, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I pull out this book and something in the calculus of I've got this new baby uh, and, this, and this wife that needs me at home and this crazy job and World of Warcraft. And I don't know what it was. Something made me open this book. And I can't tell you what I read. I don't remember what the pages were. I just remember a feeling of, how would I put it? A, a, I don't even know how to put it, like a peace. You know, all right, God, you know, <laughs> one more of these kind of, you know, where I'm, I'm laying it down, right? If you're real, you know, I'm pretty sure you're not going to hit me with a lightning bolt. And please don't while I'm on this plane. But talk to me. You know, are you there? Blah, blah, blah. And so I get on this plane and we land in Korea, which I had no idea, by the way, happens to be like like either the first or second biggest Christian nation in the world. Of course, I didn't know that at the time. And we're driving across the peninsula towards town and there's crosses literally everywhere. (laughs) What are the sheer odds, right? And I'm just going, holy shit, is this... All right, God, you know, ha ha. Um, but, but ultimately over, you know, the course of that year, I wound up making that choice at 31 years old, you know, which is really weird, right? To, to kind of buy into a system or buy into an idea kind of that late in life. Maybe it's weird. I don't you know what the hell do I know, but I don't know. I for wound, a lot of people, I mean, I don't, I don't, I can't speak maybe, for yeah, listeners, yeah, yeah, but I, don't know, yeah. I think a lot of people hit a certain stage when they hit quote unquote early adulthood. And that's when stuff starts comes happening. Over, yeah. Sure. Yeah, I get it. So you're not 15 anymore. I guess I would say overall, I had made this choice and I didn't know what it meant and I didn't know what would happen. But I can tell you now at 45, looking back, and it's been about 16 years, 15 years. I don't know if it has made my life any less complex and certainly it never promised to, but it has absolutely, absolutely informed the person I am and my heart. You know, it's just, it's grown me beyond all reason. Kind of an interesting thing on on this side of it all. So let me take a step backwards. So that was my, that was my path. You know, you know, April and I were together, families hung out. It was awesome. Sophia was the first grandchild that the Metzins ever had, you know, it was kind of interesting, right? I felt very, felt very good about life. And like I had said, you know, being a husband and being a dad, you know, we, you know, I, I, I had been made a vice president at Blizzard. Unbelievable, right? Just un, an unbelievable turn. And from there, we kind of had a nice, a nice big house and the things that you, you know, maybe some people tell themselves would be great one day. And I I had, I had it all, I had it all right. And I thought I was doing all the things and jumping through all the right hoops and, and, and keeping all the right plates spinning and being 
dutiful and responsible and, you know, um, playing these roles the right way. And I think I would have told you at the time that I was very, very happy. And I think that I was, you know, in, in terms of in terms of what I understood about life and everything at the time. So jumping ahead a little bit, you know, we, we were together for together, 10, married eight, perhaps another kid. You know, we had a, a son, uh, you know, about five years after Sophia. Can I can I stick something in here and just say I uh, don't know if I've ever been around and I don't I'm not saying this because you're here. Or I actually feel this. I have not been around cooler kids. They are the nicest children. Oh, thank you for saying they, that. I've only had a few opportunities to sit with them. Also, your son is some sort of mad genius and is amazing. And I, I, they, they those kids left a real impression on me. And I'm, thanks, man. I'm a big, you know, I love kids and I love yeah. raising my own kids. And kids impress me all the time. But there was something about these two. They've got, they got a little something there. I don't know what it is, and I don't claim to know. But no, it's, they're they're good kids. They, yeah. they've well, they've been through a lot of shit, which. I will get to <laughs> one of these days. Yeah. So that being said, you know, anyway. That being said, so so let's jump ahead a little bit. Um, I feel like I want to pause and apologize again for rolling this giant fucking soliloquy out. Thank you for your patience. <laughs> I I swear it'll go somewhere. Maybe it maybe this will all go somewhere. Ask me now if I feel like there's a cathartic thing happening. I can't answer that. Um, so fast forward a couple of years. So the interesting turn that it takes is after you know like about a little over seven years of marriage, she realized that. Uh, she's gay. Well, that would really come out of this. That would there. There that is. Yeah. yeah, that was a that was a little bit of a. As you might imagine, that was a little bit of a speed bump. Yeah. On the rosy road of life and marriage and all that. Um, you know, she had really kind of had you know kind of an epiphany about uh, you know what she was about and you know things she needed in her life that she had been you know kind of not facing for a long time and maybe in a really weird way. Um, you know, she, obviously she was always wired like she was wired, but kind of having grown up in the family she had grown up in, uh, maybe I was, you know, at that time when I was 26, I think I became very boring after we got married. But before we got married, I, you know, I was pretty, pretty fun guy, you know, yeah. perhaps I was a boy that was exciting enough, but whose core was family enough that maybe I could help her complete this circuit that was expected of her, right? You know, I, I think... She always wanted to be a mom. She's an awesome mom. And she always wanted to be a mama. And I think also to her, you know, family is so important. You know, she comes from this, you know, rich, you know, Italian family. I don't mean rich, loaded, but yeah, rich, uh, rich, history, rich in spirit, right? And so I think in a way, as much as she helped me complete circuits about myself, you know, that maybe um, I was the 20-something-year-old guy that sure loved her, um, but I was maybe exciting enough then that she believed that she could do this life, you know? And, and does that make any sense? Yeah, it totally uh, does. I, I, I wonder I'm, if... Uh, no, I'm it makes perfect sense to me and having had experiences with some friends and family in different circumstances, but the same sort of uh, outcome. Yeah. Like a lot of times that's a common, well, my sister's who's a therapist and helps people all the time with stuff. You know, she'll, she'll talk about cases that are, that are this very thing. Somebody's like, wait a minute, I, I feel a certain way, but boy, this guy I'm with just is everything. And I, and I think, I think I can totally make this work. And it's all, and, and it also adheres pretty closely to the path that my family wants me to be on and, totally. and all of that i mean did they did they because it's safe right like like you can see what that life will be even yeah. though your heart might die a little bit over time and did they pop because it's not your truth did, you they, did they did they kind of pop at this news i mean i i don't need to get the full family reaction but i'm just it, it does it seems like it would come as a bit of shock to them given you know kind of where they're uh, at I, I will i will say this i think the word exorcism might have been used uh once or twice <laughs> if that gives you a level of indication of wow 
um, how red hot it got for a while. So it was um, a catastrophic turn in the road. And we, you know, neither of us could imagine divorce. You know, we, we, in, it's, it's even hard to go back and really understand all the ins and outs. We haven't talked about it all that much, she and I together um, in the years since. Um, we've talked a lot, you know, with, with others, you know, but I don't think either of us could even uh, imagine a course for divorce, we had these little kids, you know, our, you know, we, we absolutely had to hold it all together for them and keep them safe and, and stable. And we sure did like each other a lot. You know, mm -hmm. we, we had had all this experience together and been parents together. And, you know, we had lived through so much. It was just this yawning conclusion that while we made a good partnership, perhaps in many, many ways, the core romantic underpinning of the marriage just wasn't really gonna be served and talk about truth that you can't ignore it's just there fucking a, right yeah. you know just just uh and that's pretty elemental uh, i think to us both you know at the time you know it's not just an issue of sex you know it's just you know which is which is important uh, actually but just this fundamental issue of that intimacy and and do you really see me for who i am and you know Here's a crazy question. Can I really love this gay woman as she needs to be loved? And I'm, again, not talking about sex. Although that gets a little hard psycho psychologically, too, if, if you take my meaning. You know, well, it's a lot more, yeah. a lot more stressful, uh, uh, you know. Well, I, and look, uh, as, it, as it, much it as it's going to make somebody snicker, uh, it's that's a real, I mean, it's a real thing. Intimacy between couples and their ability to maintain a healthy part of that, that part of their life really matters. Part. It's huge. Yeah, and it's, it's not just, oh, dude, I've got to get my rocks off. It's not the point. Right. The point is this this is where closeness and realness and... So important, right? you know? Totally agree. And maintaining that intimacy is so important because it gets it gets harder as time goes on. Everybody thinks about, you know, romantic love and sex. You know, you're first dating and things are just, you know, you're levitating off the ground. It's so good and you're so Twitter-pated and th that doesn't last. It's not built to last chemically or you know physically and when it peters out you know people panic you know oh we're not compatible like no you're totally compatible you just you, i hate to say for a long-term relationship you kind of have to keep working on that stuff mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. sometimes it does feel like work and sometimes you're not just vibing you know mm -hmm. and sometimes you have to you know you you know i don't know fire things up that's truth you know, so, you know, we went to counseling, we, we you know, we, we did everything that could, you know, uh, well, why don't you guys try to date again? I'm like, D I, do you guys not fundamentally get that this is not going, <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it just became clear and clear that um, at that level, it just wasn't going to work. And the, the ultimately we wound up uh, getting a, a divorce mm -hmm. and um, it was uh, absolutely, it's hard to even put it into words. It was absolutely terrible. It was just absolutely terrible let alone for two people that do love each other you know maybe not in that same way anymore but you know had lived all this life together neither of us wanted to put each other through something like that and it was terrifying what do we do now how will we live what are we about how do we take care of these kids and minimize this how do we protect them through this we were terrified of what this would do to the bubba's terrified and we you know we committed to you know be as amicable as possible and um and thank god we we were it went really well you know but the truth is underneath a lot of that like i while i thought i was hip and i thought i'm like okay well that's your that's your truth maybe that's information i could have used 10 years ago and i would go through all those haha -ha exercises uh but i thought i was hip you know okay you're gay you know it's, we'll, we'll just you know we'll, we'll call it time served and you know 
keep on keeping on. We'll, we'll, we'll go another way. But in truth, I was utterly devastated. It, and not just in the way that like, I think any normal person would be. My whole glass menagerie hung on this marriage, you know, this woman, these children. You know, I talked the first time about you know, like the imposter syndrome and being that officer at Blizzard. And as long as I can perform, right, as long as I can still hook good ideas and get them built into a game and have the audience at BlizzCon uh, applaud and think they're great, then I have worth. And I had to keep this machine running and right. running and right. running forever like a like a, a sick mousetrap. Well, I, I think in so many ways, looking back, the marriage had become that for me too. And I think she also sensed that. I don't know that she had her own version of that, but I think she sensed it in me. It wasn't just the disillusion of this love that I had had with her and how it made me feel. It was the armature of my identity, of my pride, my self-worth, that I could play all these roles and do a good job and hold it together, right? Now, whether I was fun at parties or whether I was fun to live with during all that is a whole other story. She would tell you I was the most boring, you know, it's like living with fucking Worf the Klingon, you know, uh, <laughs> shields up, Captain, you know, uh, take the kids at six and then I'm going to pick up the dry cleaning. And yeah. like, I think she would tell you I was just about that dry trying to be such a dutiful creature. Yeah, it's a common I mean, you're you're past this, that, and and I, so I'm not here to say like, hey, Chris, you should feel a certain way, but I hope you don't feel too bad about that. Like, I feel like that's something all all of us would do. Like, oh we, yeah, 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 yeah. No, it, it's like over over the years, I look back and it, it, I don't, you know, I I know how I got into that state, you know. Yeah. Um, and I'm just, I thank God I got out of it. Although I'm sure if you asked Kat today, she'd like a little more wharf, and that's not just because <laughs> she's a Star Trek nerd, you know, dude. <laughs> Can you vacuum every once in a while or are you really going to leave those dishes in the sink? I think she'd be stoked for uh, uh, a little bit of uh, Klingon eye counsel yeah. in that capacity. That's pretty cool visual too, Worf uh, vacuuming, by the way. Come pop! Yeah. You know? um, <laughs> so the divorce was really brutal and it really broke a lot of me down. And again, you know, this uh, that's funny I use the word like that glass menagerie kind of thing. Um, I don't know if there's a, a skeleton version of that device um, but kind of this idea that, you know, um, I was I was playing this role and suddenly I couldn't. The role has been stolen. The role has been burned to the ground. And while I had this cool job at Blizzard and blah, 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 and maybe I was thought of, well, you know, the truth was I just, you know, collapsed. In so many ways, that's what I was dealing with. Uh, during that phase, that that cataclysm, heart of the swarm. I know those timelines don't immediately overlap, but those are the two games that I think I poured most of this into. With Thrall, it's kind of easy to see a guy that, that that literally just can't play. The the literally the world is burning down around him, and he can't talk to the spirits anymore. He's all out of his groove, and he thinks. He's just been playing this Messiah role all these years because one, it's what people expected him to play. And two, the truth was it simply made him feel like he had worth and how terrible for Thrall to realize it doesn't give me worth. I don't really know what my worth is. Mm. I'm going to have to go and find it, mm. you know, mm. um, and I'm going to have to lay down the thing that is my greatest strength and source of security, which is being the war chief. I actually have to get rid of it in order to find a more real man, you know, below, you know, that's what was going on in all that calculus. And I think in so many ways, I, uh, 
that's why I started to say, it's like, you know, April didn't do anything wrong. She simply had an epiphany and she played the cards as best she could play it. But we were, our marriage or whatever was dealt a rough hand. I think we both have all sorts of perspective. Um, but I was incredibly angry for years, uh, at least a few years there. And I want to say I was angry at her. I was angry at fate. Was I angry at God? God, you had drawn us together, right? You had created this family. You pulled me into this racket, your Christian racket, and I'm jumping through your hoops. And this is how it goes. You feeling like, uh, did that feel like you were being, I don't know. That, that had to have been. It was rough. Yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'm having a loss for words here because I just can't. Um, uh, wasn't this supposed to be god your big story that i jumped into this racket for and you you know you know blah 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 and i was pissed and i was pissed at a level that i, I couldn't even really face it in myself because i had never felt anything like it i never had a, a need in my life to be this angry at anyone or anything and i think i had made once again april into kind of this cartoon version of herself, right? Which was not true in any way. She's this loving, wonderful person doing her best in this rough, rough situation. But I let everything I heard from her. And every time we would talk about the kids or, you know, go to, you know, we're going to send them to this school or, you know, how, how are you packing lunches, you know, and just all the little stupid things that come up as a result of your day-to-day -day life. And things would just send me into orbit. I was just so angry at living in a tiny dark little appointment and going to pick the kids up and then the absolute silence and the black hole when they would leave and be gone you know for a couple of days i i could not deal with it and that anger again which i unfairly put on her because i did really didn't have anywhere else to aim it oh god i did and mm -hmm. you know i'll say a little bit about that i couldn't handle it and that anger, I think it also bled into the work and maybe bled into my kind of how I was doing it, Blizzard, in those days. I think I was a lot more, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure I was a lot more volatile or excitable or, uh, you know, on some days, imagine just fucking brooding, which uh, comes so easily to me for some strange reason. <laughs> Tapping back into your 15-year-old a little bit there. Oh, my God. Yeah, let alone, you know, yeah. So funny thing that after, I don't know, yeah, about a year and a half of, um, you know, post-divorce, I was in a rough space. Like I said, you know, as I had grown up, you know, I'd had girlfriends or whatever, but I was a shitty dater. And I, I can't tell you how in mortal fear I was of trying to date again and open myself up to all of that again. So and if I'm bad. being totally honest, like, I think I was even, I was even afraid of just being intimate again, you know, like, you know, like, you know, come on, you know, red blooded dude, you know, it'd be great to get laid. Right. But I was terrified of just being close to anybody or how am I ever going to be alive again, you know, that way. And the only people I really had around me were, you know, my two kids. Right. You know, I think I was so tense all the time. And you know, I think I probably raised my voice a little more often than I needed to in that phase, which is exactly the thing I was trying not to do mm -hmm. in terms of keep them safe and keep, keep them away from the splash damage of the divorce. And maybe it could have been a lot worse, but I was, I was low and I was lonely and I was terrified of dating. And I remember a good friend of mine, a guy named John knee, uh, who, uh, it's currently, what's John doing these days? I think he's running games, he's running Marvel comics over there in, in Manhattan. Whoa. John's just a happening dude. Mm. Um, and at the time, he was running a little company called Cryptozoic, which um, existed across the street from from Blizzard. Oh, right. Cards and, and tabletop. You know, so, and, so I, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, dude. Yeah, they would do, they did the WoW TCG and um, 
mm-hmm. you know, just wound up putting together a really bitching little studio, um, doing board games and card games and collectibles and things. And so I would, you know, during this phase, you know, this post-divorce, you know, Lonely Hearts Club phase, I would go kind of hang with John. You know, we'd become good friends and um, he's just a super philosophical, wonderful dude. And we would sit and chain smoke and drink whiskey and just talk about the fucking universe and, you know, solving mysteries and thinking big thoughts and blah, 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 blah. And it turns out one of John's good friends uh, was this girl, Kat, who um, I had met a couple times around the office. I think at that point, I can't remember, um, but I certainly remembered her from like BlizzCon. You know, she was like this Katie Couric girl that, you know, asked all the challenging questions and had this crazy mind that could sift all this data. And I don't know, just contextualized the whole show. You know, she fascinated me, but she was great at that uh, stuff. And the, the, the back in the shooter days when they were doing um, the frag dolls, that whole thing, yeah, yeah, she'd yeah. be out in front and <laughs> spokesperson and talking like at those events. She was, she was a force to be reckoned with in those yeah, days. Just a total, total badass. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we had met a couple of times through John and um, obviously I thought she was super cute, but you know, uh, up until, you know, uh, 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 God, was it a year and a half, two years? It would, after 20-some years at Blizzard, um, I would never have asked a girl out that I, you know, worked with or, you know, I, I just, it would just wasn't part of my giddy-up to um, get to, I don't know, you know, to, well, I was married most of that time. So just, yeah, I would never get involved with someone that I worked with as just a, a general a general rule that sounded wise in my 20s. And then, and then you know, obviously I was married for most of that time. So I really was not looking to date. I was not looking to do anything. I don't know. Maybe if I'm being honest, I was a little intimidated, but maybe a little hanky panky would have been awesome uh, just, <laughs> just for funsies. Um, but of course it's... now here's the funny thing too. I'm this Christian guy, right? I, I jumped into this racket and I'd taken my oath on it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how to be a single Christian dude. Does this mean I'm never going to get laid again? Do I like, I specifically can't what, you know, they <laughs> talk about feeling like you're 14 again. And so I started hanging out with Kat and John's like, I've, I got a feeling about you two knuckleheads. And after some misstarts or whatever, I finally got the courage up to, to ask her to go and have dinner. And it was just one of the most interesting times where I didn't know what I was ready for. It's just dinner, right? And from the direction she was coming from, you know, she had been, you know, at some rough highway um, some years before this. And I don't think she was really, you know, all that like, she was kind of like, all right, you know, I'll have dinner with you. And we wound up sitting for hours and just, it was just one of these conversations where, you know, I, I, I kind of said that, you know, the only real equity in the world is what you share with someone when you're uncool. That had to have been the most uncool, you know, crystallized moment of my life and maybe hers. But I wound up just gushing to her. I, was like, I think I'm an asshole to my kids. I think I'm so angry that I yell at them maybe a lot and I hate myself for it. That was like our first dinner. You imagine that shit? And then she turns around. Oh, she's like, oh, yeah. And she jumps. She drops this shit on me, you know, from her experience. And I'm like, right. That's gnarly. Holy shit. Let me let, let me. And suddenly it's that scene in Jaws where they're drunk and they're showing each they're comparing scars yeah. around the table uh, in the middle of the boat. You know, it's, oh, check this one out. This was from the Indianapolis. And we wind up having this the most amazing just time of just being kind of naked and real and not not literally naked or whatever. I am happy to report <laughs> that that did occur uh, some months later. Thank God. <laughs> just, just, just total vulnerability of just, um, I'm going to let all my bullshit hang out. And in, in a weird way, that's how we started to get to know each other. It wasn't like 
the best possible view. I guess she knew me. I'm, I'm the, she thought I was like a total corporate douchebag. I'm the guy on stage at um, Blizzard. And like everyone else, I'm sure thinks, you know, I'm sure what that guy looks like is that I'm some kind of douchebag who thinks he's all that and must be on Coke and driving a Lamborghini. You know, I'm sure that's what she thought. Um, I mean, I assumed you were snorting said Coke from the hood of the Lamborghini. So. Dashboard, dog. Yeah, you ever see that? <laughs> so... You ever see True Romance? Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. So it was the most freeing. I'd, I'd never met a girl like her, and I'd never had a, a, a moments with someone where you could, I finally, I could just be myself, and here's the warts, and here's the, because really at the end of the day, I'm a goofy kid with a bull haircut with a lazy eye that doesn't deserve shit. That's, my, that's the root of my fear. Mm. Not true but the root of my insecurity. And from that basis, you know, kind of a, I didn't realize this is the time, but that was what, what was happening, allowing her to see that kid. Cause I had, at this point in my life, I had no, there were no shields. There were no, there was no artifice, right? I was a ball of emotion and grief and confusion. And she was so patient um, with me and um, with all the things that she was working out in her life. Um, we just wound up, you know, as, as so often happens, right? You know, it's it's almost like two people um, recovering from just grief, from this bombs going off. And we pulled each other up. And I was kidding about, <laughs> I was kidding about the codependency. We laugh about it all the time. But we wound up developing, you know, I mean, maybe I want to say like my first really honest relationship. Top to bottom. Yeah. Top to bottom, you know, like real love. You know, like I, I see her for who she is and that predicates how I you know, how I love her and how, you know, how I work through things with her and, and vice versa. And looking back so often, I see now that with April, I had been, I think I was in love with this version of her that I had constructed in my head or, or that she had constructed too, to facilitate this life that we were both trying to live, you know? And, and so, and so the interesting stuff, I'll get it right. I'll get back around to cataclysm, but the way the story um, kind of catches up to the present is I love it. I love our story. And in a way, Scott, I guess, yeah, I do is, I know I keep apologizing for this big, long meandering thing, but I do like talking about it. I did want to talk about it, I guess. And because for all of my anger that prevented me from kind of it's ridiculous, you know, for like forgiving April for blowing up our marriage. She didn't do that. She didn't do a damn thing. You know, she was actually courageous and had to choose her life, be bold with, with the wiring of her heart. But I think I, I was an asshole to her for a very long time and just crushingly angry. And I blamed her. I blamed her. I blamed her. And I couldn't get rid of it. I couldn't get rid of the toxicity. I couldn't get rid of my anger because I thought that, you know, it, it had all been stolen. My life had been stolen. And in Getting close to Cat, you know, a few years later and, and kind of relearning what it is to love and relearning that, you know, I, I do have worth as, as a man, as a mate, as someone's dude. Like, no, you know, I, I, I do have worth. I, it, it's not just playing a role, you know. I softened, I think, to April and, um, you know, my heart started to open up. But it really, here's, here's the trick and here's why elemental bonds. Because unbeknownst to me, I would learn this a few years later. Cat has, I think it surprised her too. She has such a deep, insane sense of what family is. Um, she herself, and she can tell her own story, but she had, she had a pretty rough childhood. She had a rough example of nuclear family and consistency and whatever else. Again, I, I, don't, I don't know if I should roll out her story. I will not. But despite her experience, uh, she has such an innate instinct for 
what holds people together, the, the right action to take to hold people together, and just this courage in the face of it to just choose to do radical things. It, I, this won't make any sense, but she, unbeknownst to me, wound up going out with April, going to lunches with April to get to know her, to hear her story, to befriend her and pull alongside her as someone who, you know, we're all raising kids together, right? We are all team parent one way or another. And we love these precious people that we share between us more than anything. And so Kat's like, Chris is so angry and so fucking touchy and stupid when it comes to April stuff. This is, it's just never going to work. It's just not going to work. Um, the relationship will not work. The kids are going to get roughed up long-term. This is fucking ridiculous. So unbeknownst to me, she starts hanging out with April to create a bridge, to create relationship. I had no idea. You know, so, so like over the next year or two, things would go off and like any normal stupid Wednesday thing would come up that would normally make all of my defensive missile batteries activate. <laughs> Shields up, you know, full fire, you know, Godzilla's back, you know, you know, launch a full spread. Cat would go, are you sure that's what she was saying? Are you sure that's what's going on? Maybe, maybe this was going on or maybe it was just a miscommunication. And I would go, huh, yeah, maybe, you know. And little by little, she helped facilitate forgiveness and re-engagement between April and I. And again, forgiveness, like there was nothing, she didn't need forgiveness for anything, but it's like I did. It's like I needed to get over myself. I needed to, I needed my heart to heal. I needed to stop being such a damn victim and stop blaming people for shit that no one could have controlled. And under the surface of all that, enjoying what is left, which is great and wonderful. So Kat really helped build that bridge and kind of draw us back together and to the point where we've been through things as a parent team that have been truly, I, I don't think I want to talk about it, um, but um, you know, a couple issues with the kids that have been absolutely terrifying and beyond any of our ability to navigate. And it's only by virtue of having been a team and having been there for each other and talking through the sheer terror of what we were facing and how to fix it. It's been incredible to not only be Kat's man and just so stupidly in love with her and our life, but to be April's friend again and an effective dad as part of team parent and a friend to her. You know, I, I, we know each other so well, right? We spent all those years together. It's like real healing and, and real relationship again, as, as crazy as it sounds. And to kick all that off, we actually just, um, at Christmas time, we just moved into what is essentially kind of the, the house of our dreams, right? Kat and I are both retired and raising a little one. So when we daydreamed about, you know, well, what, where would we want to live? What would we want to do? What does that look like? You know, we, we wound up finding the house of our dreams and it happens to be literally right across the street from April's house. Oh, wow. So that our kids, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah, that's crazy. are literally a skip away every day, which, which I think for, for, for parents of kids, you know, who you share custody over sure takes a lot of the chicken sweat out of, Oh, I forgot my books at dad's house or oh, where's my sweater <laughs> yeah. or my track shoes or at mom's. I don't know. Well, you can get your little chicken ass over there and pick it up. Damn it. <laughs> you know what I mean? We are literally right across the street. It is such a crazy turn in this story, you know, and, and in the middle there, in my, in my long, dark moments of going, God, are you out of your damn mind? Is this what you had? Is, was this? And now I see it was this. 
it was always moving towards something. It was, it was not the vision of it I had when I was 26. It wasn't the vision of it I had when I was 31. It was not the vision of I had, had of it that was desolate when I was, you know, 37. You know, it was, it was always moving towards this, just a, a life that, you know, I, none of us could have built on our own and none of us could have anticipated, but, but so amazing, right? Full of all these weird turns. And, um, you know, so looking back on it all from this place of, I, I guess I can say, and it sounds cheesy again, but just peace and happiness at its simplest. Everybody's okay. The rugrats are okay. If anything, they've come through all this experience. I think with a deeper appreciation of, of people and what makes their hearts tick and an appreciation for when you're getting good family, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And an appreciation for when things aren't so good, a soulfulness and maybe a wor world weariness, you know, but everybody's okay. And then let alone Cora, you know, our, our youngest dropping into the mix has just been this crazy exclamation point of new life and um, new life in the house, new relationship for all of us. It's just been the craziest storyline to to have lived through you know i, I would I, I was gonna say holy kid, shit i think i got through all that scott you did you totally did but i was gonna say I this your kids to the present your oldest kids are still at a at this they're they're at the okay this is me dad this is the dad talking who raised yeah. three of them they're at the age where they need the crazy outcome like the fact that mom's <laughs> across the street new right. mom's right here baby sister is a riot dad's home all the time like there there's there's something going on there where they're the direct beneficiary of the of the yeah. all the happenstance and that's right? great that's super great I mean, yeah, if, I, if, I, really, if i i don't get to show a lot of bias in my interviews but i'm going to show some here that's a really great thing and i'm really happy for your kids in that thank regard you, thank you thank you so so yeah sorry for all that right <laughs> nothing to be sorry uh, for in terms of, i don't know how you cut this into a usable podcast. <laughs> trust me it's all so, gonna be great it's yeah yeah the things you might have wanted to hear about chris but never knew <laughs> um never knew you didn't want to hear so getting that was so weird in the telling. Isn't that the weirdest thing in the telling? Like, oh, totally, all kind totally. Of, like, are, are, um, are you, are, does it, does it irritate you or make you laugh that all that stuff you said about Thrall and him being too much in the forefront and then kind of what you were thinking about him at the time and then he kind of took a path that you would take at the time, blah, blah, blah. Now he's very much in the background. Does it irritate you or annoy you that everyone complains how much of the background he is and he's not in the foreground enough now? <laughs> I mean, you're not there anymore. So there's not, there's not you know, but you can do about it. Right. But well, how funny is it that it all just kind of wound up <laughs> going that way, right? Um, Makes me laugh. Uh, my comment. Yes, it's all very... Um, it's all very crazy. I guess I would say wink, wink. I hope Thrall gets off his ass soon, <laughs> but I think the parallels end there. And you can't call, you can't call audible. It's not like you can, you're now in a place where it's not like you can get on the phone with the uh, Frazer Abbey and go, dude, uh, I got a great idea. Like it's all out of your, it's out <laughs> no, of your hands now. I, I, I don't think so. I, I think, I, I think my buddy Alex would take that phone call, but yeah, no, you know, can't do that shit. We well, should um, also. I also for a long time I wanted to clear this up, but since BlizzCon I haven't had a chance. Uh, there was a lot of talk after BlizzCon when you showed up at the Q and A uh, as a surprise, and we had a little fun there. There was rumors flying for days, weeks even, about this was a, back. this was him coming back, or this is a thrall thing, or this is Chris 
saving the weekend or this was some <laughs> weird uh, corporate level decision to bring him in there and spruce up the panel or something like that. And I just, for the record, so that you, you're here to confirm it, I am literally in my underwear in my hotel bed on a phone texting Chris at like 9 a.m. Pacific. Yeah, exactly. The morning exactly. of. And I said, dude, you want to do this? And you said, yes. I think I get, you know... <laughs> The, the panic, this, it's such a big room. I'm so nervous. I, and I'm saying, dude, you'll fucking kill it. You know, and, and I said, you know what, Scott? I'm going to be there with the kids for a little bit. Maybe I'll sneak in line and heckle Alex, which would be fun anyway. And in that way, g- give you something to riff with or whatever. You know, just just be be there as a solid yeah. for my pal. You know, yeah. that's all it was. And that was fun. Like, hope, hopefully that oh, was, it was that a blast. Was and I knew I knew it was a it was no small thing for you to do because it's a lot to stick yourself out there. And so my kids are a few seats down. Yeah, oh, I can't even explain this without. Um, let's just say my son had come through some really scary stuff um, about a year previous um, at 10 and, mm. and had to be tested in a way that was not medically, but I won't get into it. But sure. he had he had been through some adventure and I'm sitting there in that back row and I'm about to go get up on a microphone in front of this room. Yeah, uh, the big room with a lot of different uh, kinds of feelings, yeah. and my my legs going like a jackhammer, and I'm wringing my hands, and I'm sweating like a, you know, uh, my heart's pounding. Here we go. I'm, you know, am I going to freak out or am I going to be able to pull this off? And I'm just trying to breathe through it. And I I I lean down, I look, I turn my head to my right, just as my ten year old son turns his head to his left, and he puts his hand up like a hammer and mouths the word, "You got this." <laughs> nice, dude. And I just about broke down crying from <laughs> the sheer irony of my 10-year-old that's had to find his own inner, you know, spirit animal was just fucking so amazing. Just such an amazing moment. And then I got up in the line and yeah, it was fun, dude. It was totally fun. Like I, I, I can't tell you how much I miss Alex and the crew. Those guys, I love Alex in particular. And they were so excited backstage. So, so here's another little secret thing. They, they didn't, they didn't know beforehand, right? They like, didn't know beforehand, but right before they were told that we had somebody special in line and some, I think Ian knew because Ian had to, I don't know. There's some reason Ian had to know. Oh, did he spill the beans? I can't remember what the reason was. There was some reason somebody else had to know and i can't remember what it was but it was some it, it made, said something snarky like oh we had no idea that you would be here <laughs> well you weren't supposed to <laughs> i don't um, think alex knew i don't think he okay. knew but uh but it was it was super fun dude you know that the the moment was really nice and then uh um i got off the mic and we literally ran out of the building you know yeah, I, you we were went around there. the back of the hall and yep. Yep. um i just it, it all caught up and I, I had just I had to get out, you know, I had to get out. I had to literally just get out into fresh air. <laughs> yeah. But it was it was awesome. I'll know? never like I'll never forget it. It was one of my favorite moments of my I don't know what this is. I do, but I've never had I've never had a, a more fun and it chilled me out in a way that it's hard to describe. But also it's like, kind of I, I don't know how to uh, put this in the words, but that's kind of what I was hoping for is is like a weird there's like an anchor effect to yeah. know that your friends are kind of in it with you and laughing through it with you. Yeah. It, it, it just kind of provides some buoyancy in a way. Yeah. You know, Plus I was, I was among these guys who, you know, are up on stage who are in some ways directly in the wake of your legacy. Uh, mm-hmm. Certainly some of them, a huge part of your legacy. They are part of the thing I still love and, and, you know, build so much of my work around and, and I'm in backstage with them after and they're like, Oh my gosh, that was so rad. And, and hearing them get excited and feeling mm-hmm. like I was, part of that for a minute was just a 
It was a pretty singular moment. And then to hear all these blogs going off about, ah, oh, what conspiracy led Chris to come to the thing? I'm thinking, man, sometimes just, you know, you look at a rake, it's just a rake. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's uh, wait, spade, it's a spade, a spade, or whatever the old phrase is. Sometimes that's all it is. <laughs> right. Sometimes all it is is just a rad idea that all panned out. And, and I loved it. It was, it was really something else. And I know that, I, I mean, that's the other thing is I know the fans loved it. We consistently were told, no offense to all other panels, but everybody said ours was the best. And I, there's no reason that's true except for our little shenanigans. It's because you, you, you do the thing. Eh, it went all right. I still say you showing up was, was, uh, it was the highlight of, well, it was the highlight of my BlizzCon. So oh, whatever. if I didn't. <laughs> Come on now. Come on now. It's a ridiculous thing to say. Oh, that's awesome. We've smattered enough game stuff throughout that that, that crowd will be. Do you think? Oh, yeah. They'll love it. I mean, I think that this is the thing. I think the last. I didn't two, even get into the Kerrigan stuff. Oh yeah, I bet there's all was, kinds uh, of fun. Did you ever Kerrigan. play StarCraft? Oh, I, oh yeah, to death. StarCraft two. To both everything from '98 so through that, to, 2010. So Heart of the Swarm was entirely so that whole scene at the end. Yeah. Oh, with uh, him walking out with her in his arms and all that. It, yeah. No, that was the end of the first one. Oh, that was Wings of Liberty. You're right. That's Wings of Liberty. So the end of Swarm, where they've killed Mansk. Right. And she's looking up at the sky. Yep. And knows that that's where her life is yeah and they'll never be together yeah. and you know thanks jim you know my pleasure darling always was that it took a long time to put that scene together it's, meaning i wrote it years before all that 3d art finally got but that's me letting go of april and the scene the scene in the jail cell where she comes to break him out oh right she walks in the door and she's zerged out and he is beside himself, right? Like he, he sacrificed everything to what get her human again so that they could be together. And she chose this other life. Mm -hmm. And he says, we're fucking done. You know, he's like, what does he say? I literally said that out loud to her, you know, one of the last, you know, mm -hmm. um, we're done, you know, mm -hmm. and it fucking spears me through the chest. Every time I see that scene, there's so many moments that are baked through of having processed the that relationship. So weird. Is it? Is there a re? Oh, this is a weird question. I'll ask it anyway. I f through end of Liberty and, and and Heart of the Swarm. I definitely felt all of what you're talking about. Like it was. It, it all felt super. Um, I don't know. It was all very intense, and it didn't feel false or you know maudlin or you know. It's like we we don't get to have each other, right? But did we inform each other? Did we love enough? that we did change one another for the lives that we will now have. So much of it was that um, to me, you yeah. know, through the anger and through the processing. Yeah. It's um, interesting because everybody wants to force this view through the, the lens of world of Warcraft. And really it sounds like a lot of that got left on the Starcraft floor. You know what oh I mean? God, it's so much more naked in Starcraft, you know, like, yeah. you know, where uh, this isn't one-to-one, -one, but where Zerg is gay, you know, mm -hmm. Um, you can, you can kind of re-step back through a lot of those ins and outs. Sure. Um, sure. So interesting, right? Yeah. Like, we're not, by the way, anyone listening to this part, if I end up using it, we're not saying being gay is like being a Zerg. We're, we're not, not saying, saying that, that at no. all. Oh my God. Come on. <laughs> we're not. Come I on. I just want to put that out there in case some, somebody jumps on that because sometimes they do. All right. Well, that's fantastic. I was going to ask you about, um, the, when you worked on, 
Is there uh, my favorite series of all time is Diablo? Is there anything in Diablo that that I could look to and go, oh, there's Metzen doing a thing? Yeah, all the uh, interesting. Um, so the angry atheist I was at you know my early twenties um, gave you a lot of the beats that made up the Diablo universe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Zakarun, you know, religions of hatred and asshole angels, all of that kind of you know the eschatology or mythology of what kind of made sanctuary a, a, a cohesive world such that it was a lot of that came out of my resentments um, and fascinations with faith and religion and mm. mysticism, obviously a little, a little more based than that for me as a point of inspiration. I always loved that. Do you know who a guy named Greg Wyden is? Uh, that name's familiar. Uh, Gregory Wyden was a screenwriter. Uh, back in the late 80s, Wyden wrote uh, Highlander, the original, um, and oh, Home. That's why I know uh, it. And okay. Wyden wrote uh, a, a movie a lot of people haven't seen called The Prophecy. Yeah, there were sequels uh, to that. Christopher Walken, Elias Koteas, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, Eric Stoltz. But they, you know, it, was, it was very Highlander-esque. What Wyden did is he's just a fucking monster at world within world, right? You know, the secret conflict behind the, you know, behind the, the veil that – uh, you know, most people could see. Um, and so the prophecy in Highlander in particular were very um, um, inspirational to me uh, in terms of that world within a world. And, and that really informed how I wanted to look at sanctuary, you know, like a, an eternal conflict hidden from the eyes of mortals. No one really knows it's happening until it winds up spilling out uh, literally from a hole in the ground um, and becoming a real big problem. So I always loved that kind of stuff. Um, but I think a lot of my skepticism and cynicism for, at that time, faith, people of faith, um, religion, as it, were, as, as it was, really bled out and informed a lot of that stuff. Again, that's my opinion. Um, mm. you know, I don't, you know, um, that's certainly not what Blizzard you know, thinks or thought at the time at all. But that's what I had in my heart at the time. Um, I wanted to create a cool fantasy universe that mirrored my tone and thinking um about a lot of that kind of there's like a fatalistic edge to it um so so interesting as you fast forward a little bit to diablo 3 it may surprise people that diablo 3 had a slightly different bent um, Mm. from the first game that was on purpose and again a lot of people didn't like where i was driving but i was absolutely driving towards one having a more cohesive story than we had done before um and having it have I would have told you some soul. I wanted to bring the Andrews Council forward and have them be characters that were cool and if not relatable, uh, dynamic, uh, moving the mythology forward. You know, I wanted to do something cool with Tyrael, you know, the whole idea that he would give up his station, his immortality, his power, his identity. Again, this theme again to crash back down to the mortal level to help as a man, right? To, to relearn what it means to be mm-hmm. just a man, you know, to give up your strength and start over um, was very important to me. Um, and, and again, you can see that theme with, you know, Thrall and um, in, in a way that goes in Kerrigan, but it's a little different. Right. Um, I pushed a lot on Diablo three to have simply have more heroism more soul, more of the sense of the mythic coming around again. Um, just a, a 
where where soulfulness meets heroism is is really where I tried to push, you know, through kind of Leah becoming a, you know kind of a hero in her own right, and then tragically revealed that she's been used this whole time and will actually be the latest avatar of this evil we just can't seem to get rid of. Um, you know, um, Diablo was a was a, a really big one to me. I put a lot of myself into that game. Um, I remember thinking specifically, um, you know, is there some issue with, with you know, um, being a Christian guy and working, you know, on a game like this? And, you know, I, I did have it in my head from time to time. I would ask the question. Um, but at the end of the day, um, I wanted to do a good job on Diablo. I certainly wanted it to be heroic and epic, epic in the way that everything else we did within the studio was, right? I wanted Blizzard to be a very specific kind of publisher. Um, I wanted, you know, us to have studio themes and types of stories and worlds that people would immediately go, ah, I get it. It's that Blizzard thing. Um, and to me, that meant making Diablo a little more heroic that way. And I got a lot of flack for that. You know, people didn't, you know, they didn't necessarily want that. Um, they wanted what they remembered from the first game or so, where it was a little more fatalistic and bleak, uh, lonely, paranoid. You know, the way those tile sets worked, the way the fog of war worked, that first game just felt so um, kind of crushing, uh, like you were drowning underwater. And while that all sounds terrible, Diablo 1 was amazing for that, right? It was so atmospheric. And there wasn't this big grindy story that you had to account for. Um, it was just a perfect product of its time. And so as I'm trying to make Diablo, now I see, looking back, maybe a little too in a way. Warcrafty in terms of its heroic narrative, um, I can see now how people were just like, it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like. So I look back and I'm very, I'm very proud of Diablo 3. Um, no question about it. But I know that many of my coworkers thought it might have moved a little too far away from that supra dark thing the first one had. And clearly, you know, elements of the fan community felt that too. So, you know, I get all that looking back. It's one of my favorite games of all time. But again, that's where I was at the time. And I felt very passionately about, about just really doing something that would sing with that game. Um, mm -hmm. And I appreciate you saying that. I'm very proud of it. But I don't just say it to say it. I mean, I, I really loved it. I'm still mad at Blizzard for no more expansions. And I can't wait to see what 4 is. And like all of this stuff, is it, it, it's, it's just been an important series to me. But I there is a moment in that game that you probably wrote or pushed for or approved or talked about or something. But when Tyrael gives up his station as justice, you know, the, the, the angel yeah. of justice yeah. Yeah. and says, you know, he's having this fight with, with, um, Imperious. I always say Tiberius. Why do I do that? Kirk. I, yeah. Kirk. I got Spock on the brain. Anyway, uh, when he gives it up and drops those, those gauntlets and his, and his shoulders fall off the back and, he gets sucked down into that vortex and the way Tiberius, I did, I did it again. The you way Imperius, why do I taste toast? Anyway, <laughs> he, he rears back and says sacrilege, like as if, as if this great moment of, of decision that is this ultimately will be his great humbling, but they, but then his, his greatest strength, like Tyrael's greatest strength is what he's about to do. Right. is it's not in the so wings. meaningful to me so powerful compared to any story riffs in previous diablo games i understand why people may not f look they're looking for their bloody hard fantasy and they didn't get right. it or something 
uh, or, or it's at least story-wise. I think the game itself is visually, you know, it's pretty dark. It's plenty of blood, lots of killing and demons dying, and, you know, there's stuff going on. Yeah, baby. Uh, but uh, <coughs> that moment uh, is one of my favorites of, of video games, and that battle between those two. And the idea that, you know, Imperius, he, uh, he's this... I, you know, it, it, he's this icon of like, he's the God angel, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he's gotten so high and mighty in his, in his position and in his station that he's forgotten some of these basics and to have Tyrael just put that in his face and take this brave move and then spend half the game, not entirely sure who he is, is it was a glorious thing, man. I loved it. I loved that whole thing. So I know yeah, there may have been people who didn't like the, the the way that story was going and and call it what they want, but I appreciated the fact that the game was trying to give me more more to reach for than just uh, a glimpse of light in the in the bleakness, but maybe a, a full you know a full removal of the bleakness, you right. know, and 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 finding some you know heroism that we don't usually find in that kind of dark setting. Thank you for saying that. I I really appreciate that you know like it's funny dude it's like all of that meant a lot to me at the time like i loved that story i loved building the cinematics with nick carpenter i loved you know just developing that whole level because to me that was all the potential within the fiction of the universe you know like the the manual and the background i wrote in that diablo one manual to me this was the natural end expression of these ideas. This is those little ideas all grown up. And it meant a lot to me to get into those themes and, you know, get to love Leah that way and then lose her and, you know, just the stakes involved. Um, but yeah, Tyrael's whole arc was just, uh, it meant so much to me at the time. I was desperately trying to communicate whatever's beneath all that desperately. And I got to, you know, and how funny, you know, it goes out and, uh, it's a mixed bag, right? You know, a lot of people hated it. So it's kind of like, all right, you know, um, that's fine. But I wrote my song. Maybe someone will play it again, you know, and maybe someone will love to hear it again. I got to write it. I got to sing it. Um, and it'll echo however it's going to echo. You know, I'm, I am content. 